my sophomore year of uh, college at Lancaster Bible College, I remember taking a class. It was sociology class. And I don't know if any of you took sociology class when you were in college, but it was a pretty big waste of time. I did not enjoy it at all. If any of you are out there in the sociology field, um, I ask your forgiveness, but I don't understand. Yeah, <laughs> good luck to you. Um, and I remember having an attitude, which really wasn't the best attitude. I'm not real proud to admit it, but my attitude was basically, I don't think I'm ever going to use any of the stuff that they're talking about, so I'm probably just going to you know, cash, cash it in and, and just get like a B or a C in this and not really care. Um, and, and nobody, who, who will really notice that my GPA dropped, you know, 0.01 because of, because of this one day. Um, and I remember having that attitude towards class and a couple of the projects. And this pr professor was, I mean, th this guy was the, the guy that you didn't want to take his classes because he was mean, he was rude, he'd work you like crazy. And um, in fact, I, I was telling somebody else that I'm going to talk about Dr. Packard, and they're like, oh, Dr. Packard, that's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's typically the reaction that you would get where everybody would, they would delay taking his class in hopes that he would retire. <laughs> so you'd push it off, and I was like, no, I just want to get it out of the way. Um, and I, I remember one of my papers that I handed in, and I got like a C on it, and um, in, in red letters at the top, it said, see me in my office. I was like, a C? And I get to go to your office for a C? Like, what in the world? So um, I remember walking up. Like, he, he was the professor who'd been there the longest, so he was back the old hallway and um, just walking back and wondering, what, what is this guy going to do? Is he going to chew, chew me out? And, um, and I go in, and, and he just looks at me, and he very calmly says, I just know you can do more. And I, I'll never forget that. I, I just know you can do more. You see, it's very few times in my life that somebody has been so direct and honest to see and notice potential in me and to call me to more than what I was doing. In fact, I could tell you just like that, the other two times that it's happened in my life, exactly the setting, exactly the person, and where I was, what I was doing and all that, because it was so impactful for me for somebody to look at me and say, I believe you're capable of more. Look, I, I'm here in this series the next couple of weeks to say, I feel incredibly blessed. Uh, undeserving, but I feel incredibly blessed that God has tasked me with leading a group of people who are amazing. And I wake up on a regular basis thankful that God has entrusted to, to me the opportunity to lead a group of people like this. And I think there are so much potential in the body of Christ through what, what God has brought together here. Um, and, and I simply think we can just do a little bit more. And just like somebody once called out a young guy and, and said, I just think there's potential for more. Man, I love you all. And I tell you that you're incredible. And I think we can do more together. And I'm excited for what God's going to call us to. I don't even know specifically exactly what it is, but I, I just look and I say, these people are so incredible. If we all get on the same page about the same thing, it's going to be incredible to see what he does. We go to the book of Exodus for this because out of the book of Exodus, we're going to see a leader um, who, who is formed. and we're, we'll, we'll start to meet him next week, um, but we'll see a leader who is formed who really was not doing things a, a whole lot. And, and God says, no, I, I want more out of you. I want more out of you. And even in our attempts to follow God, I think there's always that next step to what God calls us to. And so we're going to check it out. We're going to look at Exodus 1. And this morning, we're going to look at the foundation for everything God's going to do in the book of Exodus. 
And uh, what I want you to understand is the things that God asks them are not easy. And sometimes we go back and we read a, a story from the Old Testament, and we're like, oh, that, that was easy. You know, th- that was different back then. No, it's still called for trust. And trust is huge. If you've ever been in the point in life where you had to trust someone for something, you really had to rely on them, um, trust is a big deal. Exodus chapter 1, l- let's get the, the, the background of what's going on here. It says, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. All right, so here's, here's the deal, what's going on here. What we just read is really a condensed history of the Old Testament, the first half of the Old Testament, where God has done some incredible things. And there's a reflection back to a very early promise where God says, hey, I, I want you to fulfill the earth. I want you to multiply. And, and we see it kind of come to fruition here. Um, and what we understand then is that God is doing something through a person named Abraham and his descendant Joseph. See, God originally created man to exist in the Garden of Eden where they're going to be blessed and privileged beyond, uh, just beyond anything they could ever do on their own. Humanity chose to reject that. And God said, okay, I'm going to provide a different option for you to be back and restored to blessing with me. And he chooses that path of restoring blessing through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, one of whom is Joseph, who we read about. And Joseph, who's got this incredibly fascinating story where, where he's left for dead, he's sold as a slave, he's thrown in jail, and he ends up second in command of all of Egypt. And, and as a result, as he's in that position, he's very much favored. And he gets everything that he wants, essentially, and his descendants likewise. And that grows and allows them to increase and increase and increase um, until one day when a new king takes over and Joseph is long gone and the new king remembers nothing about who Joseph was. And so any privilege that the nation of Israel had is gone. Any protection they had is gone. Any any thought where they were wanted and valued in the nation of Egypt is gone. And we see the new king come on the scene in verse 8. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. It, it shouldn't surprise us as we read through this that, that a, a king would get so afraid of the, the people who are uh, growing more and more numerous under us. It shouldn't surprise us that he hates them. Uh, As I was reading about this, Douglas Stewart writes, and he says, In a fallen world, hostility to foreigners is unfortunately a common human sin. It's common, unfortunately, for people to hate people who are different than them. And this new king, Pharaoh, is no different. He has no compassion. He operates in fear, and everything he does is about propaganda. Um, And he, he makes a statement that, to me, is a sad, sad statement. It says that they meant nothing to him. And I think, I think the pinnacle of human darkness is when people mean nothing to someone else. And really what happens throughout the book of Exodus, as you read it, this guy is, is in my opinion, probably the worst character in all the scriptures. Like, if you're looking for a bad guy of the bad guys, it's Pharaoh. And I think it starts with this reality that people are nothing to him. 
And from my perspective, n- no one should ever mean nothing to anyone. No one should ever be that insignificant. And God throughout the scriptures has a heart for people who are oppressed, who are forgotten, who are overlooked. And I, I think it's important for us to just stop at the beginning of this and say, well, other people can think you're nothing. But just because others think you're nothing, just because you mean nothing to others, does not mean that you're nothing to God. Just because other people think you're not important, that you're not significant, that you're too old, you're not smart enough, you're not good-looking enough, you're not, you're not with it enough, it, it, it doesn't define you. And we come back to this sort of concept a lot, um, and, and I find that because... Uh, at the end of the day, if this is what defines you, if other people are what define you in life, I feel for you. Because it's no way to live. I was thinking about this, and, and if this is what defines your sense of self-worth, what everybody else thinks of you, it, it's just a roller coaster way to live. Like when everything's going well, and, and you're the person that everybody needs something from, they, they're going to love you. They're going to build you up. But when that falls, when that fades... You're just yesterday's news. Nothing. And so we come back to this a lot. Because I, I, I want you to see yourself from God's perspective. Because I think if we define ourselves based on what other people see us as, it, it's like we just live in the mud. And what I think God does is I think he calls people out of the mud and into mission. This isn't about other people see you. This is about how God sees you. And if you, if, you, if you understand yourself based on how other people label you, you're not going to deem yourself sufficient to serve in what God calls you to serve. And so it's extremely important for us to say, I, I'm not going to assume that what other people say of me defines my expectations for God. That God has the ability to look at me and define me in a way that nobody else does. Because what we'll see is out of a people who are nothing, God's going to raise up a series of leaders who are going to change a whole lot of everything. And that's what the book of Exodus is about, is, is crisis unfolds as this new king comes in. And everybody wonders what they're going to do. And as crisis unfolds, God's plans begin to unfold as well. And so the new pharaoh, he steps in and he employs more slave masters to oppress them more, to rule even more harshly with them, to be even more bitter with them. Uh, and, and as the, the cruelness continues to increase, the nation of Israel multiplies. They just have more and more kids. And I'm sure you could do some sort of sociological study on why that is, uh, but that's for another time. So um, they are worked harder, they have more kids. They worked harder, they have more kids. And Pharaoh, the king over Egypt, what do you think his response is? To hate this, right? He gets more and more frustrated, so he comes up with even more ruthless plan B in Exodus 1, verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiprah and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery store, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. See, when people are nothing to someone, ugliness is nothing to them. Population control is nothing. Uh, murder is nothing. 
But in this situation where people are insignificant, you'll find that God from the most unlikeliest of sources is going to raise up through, through some heroic resistance some people who are going to change a whole lot. Well, people who have a concern for others that's far above a concern for their own, their own lives. And see, when you read this, when you get to the statement where, where the midwives are involved, you got to understand in their culture, like th- these are the most insignificant people that you could reference. And I'm, I'm not saying that they actually are. I'm just saying, again, in their culture, that's how they were viewed. They were cursed. They were unwanted. Um, they thought that um, a midwife was a person who typically had that job because they couldn't have children of their own, and they believed that was because they were cursed. Or they were, there's something wrong with them. They were broken. And so, and so the very fact that God would begin to lead his people out, not with leadership, not with the people who are educated, who know everything, but with the midwives is incredible. This would be the equivalent of you, of you going to a Harrisburg Senators game and the, the game-winning home run is hit by the hot dog vendor. He's not even a player. You're like, I, I wonder who's going who's gonna, to you know, hit a home run to win this thing. I think it's the hot dog guy. He looks like he's got potential. No, he's not even in consideration. And that's what's going on with the mid-rides here. These are totally unexpected people. People that everybody else has written off. People that everybody else, has, they're the nothing of the nothing. And yet, here we are, because God loves to work with unexpected people. Because there's something about unexpected people that maybe they just trust Him a little bit more. Or maybe God's just even more glorified through it all. What I do know is that when Pharaoh looks to manipulate people, he looked in the wrong place. Because he found a group of women who were going to stand up. See, when those in power use people as pawns, God is not incapable of positioning people for his purposes. They can treat you like a pawn, but that doesn't mean God's not working behind the scenes the whole time. He has plans for pawns too. And it just amazes me. If you, if you read the Bible, and I hope, I hope that you do, like just read through the book of John and look at the people who their society would just treat as insignificant and again and again you see God saying, this is a person who I'm going to use to change lives. He uses the simple to shame the wise. I mean, who would have thought that one of the greatest revolutions in the history of the world would start with the midwives? Because God builds great movements on the backs of unsung heroes. He doesn't need the best of the best to do what he's calling us to do. He just needs people willing to trust him. And so I, I think we can learn from the midwives. I think we can learn from unsung heroes to be more faithful with the things that God has called us to in life, as I think he calls each of us to more. And so let, let's go down through this uh, three reasons, the three things that we can learn from unsung heroes. Unsung heroes are aware more than they are anxious. They're aware more than they're anxious. I get you're going to have anxiety. It's kind of a big thing. People go to college and spend millions of, or you know, uh, thousands of dollars to be trained in how to deal with people who wrestle with anxiety, and, and they don't go broke as they open up their shop and, and people keep coming in the door because we all deal with anxiety to some level. But but what if what if within this struggle of anxiety, we pause and say, "Am I really being aware of what's happening right here?" What if we stop and and, and see something? Like, can you imagine the day the midwives are having at that point? 
you know, everybody is already judging them kind of quietly and subtly, and then, then they get called in to talk with Pharaoh. And he, he's the new king in town, and he's got a solution. Uh, and he's probably offered them financial incentives and on one side of it, and he's probably threatened death on the other side of it. And, and he, he says, your job is to kill or be killed. And we've had bad days, but I don't think we've been in that position. If you had, I, I, I'd love to buy you coffee and hear your story. It'd be incredible. Um, I, I, our anxiety is not really on that, that level. I talked to somebody the other day, and they were going to a pet store because they had to stop and get cat anxiety spray. Yeah, I don't even have anything to say about that. <laughs> Moving on. But the midwives, you know what it says? It says they feared God. They feared God. Now, that doesn't mean like they're afraid, they're cowering. through fear. That means that they have a sense of reverence. That means they're listening to Pharaoh say, I could end your life. And they're going, yeah, but God could end you. Th- that's what it means when it says they fear God. And so within the anxiety, they had an awareness. I started to read a book the other day called uh, Leadership, uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety. It's just an amazing book. Uh, it's about a pastor and his, his journey through wrestling with anxiety and being a leader. And he tells the story of his first day on the job as a, as a, as a um, hospital chaplain. He's a hospital chaplain. He's responsible for a floor. He's responsible for the ICU. And his job is to go and to meet with anybody um, at any point to offer any sort of uh, you know, ability to console them. And he's, he's given, on his first day, he's given three pagers. And one of them in particular flashes blue. And he says, whenever the blue light goes off, somebody has just died. And my job is to go in there and to help bring some sense of peace. And so he's going through the tour and doesn't even get done with the tour. And the blue light flashes. And he looks at the guy who's giving the tour, who's doing the training, and he says, what do I do? The guy in charge says, You'll figure it out. How's that for a first day, right? You'll figure it out. He walks in, and the family's in intense grief, and and the nurse comes along, and she says, why don't you speed this up? (laughs) We need the room. This is one of the things that he writes in this book. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, he, He says this, the goal of managing anxiety is not simply for relief. It is to connect more fully with God and to raise awareness of what God is doing. Anxiety blocks our awareness of God because it takes our subconscious attention away. That comes from a guy who's been there. Anxiety has the ability to just obsess and occupy your mind. And all we see, all we think about is whatever the threat is, whatever the fear is, whatever the potential outcome that we're fearing, and that's the only perspective that we have. And it just, it, it, it really kind of shades everything that we do think and, and see in life. What if, what if we took our minds elsewhere in that? To say, God, what are you doing in this? Why do you have me here where you have me? Where we have the ability to see the situation without the blinders of anxiety. And to ask the question, God, what is it that you're doing? See, otherwise, otherwise I think we miss out. Because it's within these situations that bring about anxiety that I believe God is often shaping us. And I think he shapes us far more 
in these, in these, really the friction of life, than he does through the ease of life. I mentioned before that we're, we're building a cabin, and one of the things that we're doing is we're taking some really cool old beams, and, and they look really dusty, and they're, they're dirty. And, and one of the things that we're doing is, is sanding them down. And as we sand them down, the dust goes away and a lot of the softer wood that's just kind of been there for a long time goes away. And you see this beautiful character of the wood underneath it all. And it would never be possible without the friction that exposes it. And through anxiety, I'm of the opinion that God, God is bringing out the character that lies within us. He's refining it. And I don't know about you, but I have found that character is rarely formed in a place of comfort. Rarely have I had a vacation and think, man, I'm such a stronger person because of this. Like somebody served me all week long and, and man, now I just have a resolve. That's amazing. No, that happens from the, the surgery I had, from the person who, who treated me poorly, from the job I got fired from. That's where the comfort, that's where the character comes from and and character is worth far more than comfort ever will be because comfort places you at the center of life and God through friction brings about character that places him and others at the center of life I think every one of us at the end of the day would say God I'd rather I'd rather be at the place in life where you're at the center other people are at the center and I'm going to live in character more than comfort do you ever hear somebody uh, say, say the phrase, they just don't make things like they used to? Usually it happens after something breaks. You, know, like you, you get something for the house and, and you install it and it breaks in the way, uh, in the process of installing it. You know, they, they just don't make it like they used to. You know where I notice this? Happy Meals. They don't make Happy Meal toys like they used to. My kids, we get a Happy Meal, and I'm looking at that, and I'm like, I think you got 30 seconds to play with this son enjoy it like they have this deep heartfelt connection to it i'm like you got five minutes but it's gonna break they don't make it like they used to and you know what i can do i can go i can go to the toys from when i was a kid this little bin we got downstairs and i can pull out a happy meal toy that's 38 years old and i can say here you go bud you could enjoy this the rest of your life because they don't make them like they used to look god if you're willing still makes people exactly like you used to with the same resolve and the same character you just gotta trust you just have to be willing to say i need to see what you're doing here i'm going to take a step back from the anxiety and figure out god why do you have me going through this what is the reason what is your purpose here and i would bet just like the midwives as you begin to seek him out and follow him that the integrity the reliability and the resolve that was hidden underneath the surface will start to show through. The king, by the way, he calls them back in and he goes, hey, what happened? How comes all these babies keep living? And, and the midwives are like, the, the, man, our, our Israelite women are not like your Egyptian women. They, they have babies quick. <laughs> they're, they're not weak. And so we can't help it. And they risk their lives by... by kind of playing a game with Pharaoh. They risk their lives. And you ask the question, well, how could they, how could they risk their lives? Well, well simple. When you, you see it with an awareness, right? When you see the situation, you know what you see? You know what they saw? The unsung heroes know that after we get called home, the mission goes on. That's a fancy way of saying 
what God's doing is bigger than my life and your life. And, and the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is generationally consistent. In other words, the next generation will need the same message. And the generation after them will need the same message. And I won't be here to give it to them. And so I've got to live like this mission and this message is more important than that next however many years that God lets me be on this earth. This is why one of our values as a church is we have a passion and an obligation for the next generation. Because the next generation won't always have us here to tell them about it. And we've got to live and we've got to do, do church in a way that says, we're going to keep entrusting you. We're going to keep putting things in your hands because we believe that you're going to have to reach the generation after you. That's going to reach the generation after you because this is about more than my life. And when you live that way, if you live that way, you're freed up from the anxiety of, man, God, I, I need to be here. <laughs> you need me here. I, I love you, but he doesn't. He, he doesn't. He, he, your heart could stop beating. And his mission and his message would go on. And he'll raise up somebody else to do it. Because that's how he works. One of the pastors who's been very influential in my life as I listen to and, and read uh, different books that he's written is a guy named Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler's got an incredible testimony of how um, he recovered from, from uh, brain cancer and just a miraculous story. But one of the things that I love about Matt's testimony as he talks about this is, is he will talk about times where, where people would come up to him and say, I know you're going to make it through this because God needs you. I know you're going to survive. You're going to beat cancer because God needs you here. And he goes, no, he doesn't. You're missing the point. And this is what he would say. This is how it works. Man goes in grave. Gospel goes on. Because otherwise, Paul would be like 800 years old by now. And he'd be up here preaching today. Right? And you'd, you'd have John over at Community Free Church, and he'd be preaching there. But, but that's not how it works. Because this isn't about us as much as it's about Jesus and the message that he has to reach people even after us. If, if, if you agree with that, then, then my question is this. What's your buy-in level? How much of that are you convinced of? Because if you're truly convinced of that, you'll follow him in a totally different way. With a confidence that says, hey, if this is, this is where I go and die, like we talked about the mission trip that we're going on in March next year, uh, mid-March, and you're like, oh, I can't fly in a plane because I'm afraid of that. If you buy into this, you go, okay, if I die in a plane on, on, on the way to, to serve kids in the Dominican Republic, I went out in a good way. <laughs> right? What's your buy-in level? Because it frees you up to live more confidently. To not have fear in the background, right? That's what the awareness in the place of anxiety does, is it lets me see life as it actually is. And it lets me recognize opportunities if I'm not just worried about myself. Third thing that unsung heroes do is they, therefore, they choose to live with results, not regrets. They choose to live with results, not regrets. I think... Everybody, there. I, I've talked to people who are like, I don't have any regrets. I'm like, really? Like, I've had stuff at restaurants where I was like, I shouldn't have ordered that. You never had that? <laughs> you never had a regret, not once? Like, you didn't buy a shirt, thought it was going to look good, and you got home, and your wife's like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> what were you thinking? We have regrets. Stop lying to yourself. 
We all have regrets. But look, look, let's look ahead in life and say, I want more results than I want regrets. I want more results than I want regrets. And, and, and honestly, as we talk about being called to more, it may not mean that you take on more responsibilities. Some of us already do too much, and that's part of our problem, is we got so much going on that we're not doing any of it real well. It may not mean that you take on any more. It might just mean that you're really incredibly faithful with what you have. Right? And, and I, I talked to, uh, to somebody the other day who was struggling with this, where they're aging and, and things aren't as easy as what they used to be. And, and this is a wrestle for them, and I don't envy that that's going to that's gonna come to me one day in life. But man, as things decrease from us in life and our abilities are not what they once were, all the more reason to be incredibly faithful with the things that God has right in front of us. And the words that you can say to somebody, the time that you can spend with them is life-changing, right? Choose to live with results, not regrets. The story of the midwives is not a story about what could have been. If only we would have. No, it's a story of what happened. And I know you're not going to be perfect, but really, th this series is about let, let's take some steps of progress. Let's say, what is God, what is that thing? that I believe that I haven't really been listening to you in. And I just, I want to trust you. I want to see what it is you have for me. And when you do that, what I found, what, what we see in the scriptures, is that unsung hearers choose to live with results, not regrets, regrets, and they're blessed because of it. Exodus 1 and 20, it says, So God was kind to the midwives. Who do you want to be kind to you in life? Like, if you had the choice of your boss or your coworkers or uh, you know your neighbor or uh, the guy who makes your food at the restaurant. I'm hungry if you can't tell. Um, who do you want to be kind to you? So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And a group of midwives becomes key players in what God's doing. What's, what I love about this is, is their names are mentioned here. Their names are mentioned. If you read through Exodus, there's not a whole lot of names. We don't know what Pharaoh it is because they don't tell us his name. And a little while later, we'll meet some of the elders of Israel. We don't know their names. Because Moses, when he writes this, somehow doesn't deem their names that important. But Moses, for some reason, felt that these ladies and their action and their sacrifice was worth mentioning. And I, I'm of the opinion that he was shaped by this as a leader. That he saw their faith in the face of fear, and, and he said, no, 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 their names get put down here. We're going we're gonna to let people know who Shipra and Pua are. That they were faithful women who served God in the face of death. And so a group of midwives decided that even they could be key players in what God was doing. You know what I want for you this morning? See yourself as a key player in what God's doing. Whatever the little thing is that you think is not that important. See yourself as a key player in what God's doing. Not because you're, you're the greatest and you're the best and everybody should be a little more like you, but because God can do whatever with whomever. And if he just chooses to use you, then by all means, let him. Because you're a key player in what God's doing. Let's pray. 
God, you are amazing. You're incredible. I love this story. I love that these otherwise overlooked and forgotten women are honored because of their service to you. I love their commitment to you, their trust that you'd provide a way out, and even if you didn't, they'd be with you, and somebody else will take up the cause. I love that we can be a people as a church who can model the same faith and the same confidence in you. And I pray that we would see ourselves as people who are important to you because you choose to use us in your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen.